0: On today's episode. When you're looking at the guys you want on your team, it's really important that you have good chemistry with your with your ball players. People ask me how, how important is it? And what I always say to people, think about the coworker you dislike the most. And then imagine that person with you on every plane ride, every game. You're together all the time. If you don't have good chemistry on your team, it can't help but have an effect on player performance.
1: Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gould. I'm excited to be overlooking the iconic Wrigley Field as we get ready to talk with Tom Ricketts, chairman of the Chicago Cubs and a CFA charterholder. Tom, hello, welcome and thank you for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, Also joining us today is Ken McTamney, partner and portfolio manager William Blair, and more importantly, an avid Cubs fan. Thank you, Hugo. Tom, after taking over ownership of the Cubs in 2009, you set about transforming the team from lovable losers. I don't know what's worse, being called a loser or a lovable loser, but you you set about transforming the team into World Series champions. Could you give us just an overview of of your vision you had at the time?
0: Yeah. And uh, Hugo, I agree. Lovable loser is worse than loser. It's like <laughs> nails on the blackboard to us. And that yeah. was one of the things that we wanted to put behind this organization. But uh, you know, on the first day that we bought the club, we put out three goals. Uh, Number one was to win the World Series, or win several World Series, if we could. Uh, Number two was to preserve and improve Wrigley Field. And number three was to be a better neighbor and more active in our community, both locally and in the whole city of Chicago. And so everything we've done since then, every plan, everything we've executed, has all been to achieve one of those three goals. And when you look back at 2009, going into owning the club, we knew that's what we wanted to achieve. I mean, the, the ways we got there, we weren't sure yet, honestly. I mean, the, the deal was very complicated. It was a very long deal. Uh, it took a long time to get done. The, the work just to close was overwhelming. It was uh, my decision to hang on to the people that were currently in the, in the big chairs here, the management team here, and then assess them after we got in. And, you know, and that strategy worked out pretty well for us.
1: So parts of the plan were very specific, I imagine, and parts maybe less so, but one of the things I've taken away from sort of reading research that we've done is around recruitment. You seem to have a very, very detailed recruitment process. That seems to be something you really, really emphasize. Is that fair?
0: Well, it, it, yeah, obviously the most important thing is people. and that, yeah, Everyone says that, but it, it's just really true. Uh, you know, we, we look at this, I look at my responsibilities as kind of split into the business side and the baseball side. Uh, fortunately for us on the business side, we had a very, very strong chief executive, Crane Kenny, helped him with a couple different people on the management team. And then he filled it out and they wrote the strategic plan that, that we executed against on the business side. On the baseball side, uh, spent a lot of time working with the baseball people that we had. I went to all the minor league clubs. I, went to the, I sat in the draft room, really immersed myself with all the information I could get in order to be as informed as possible and to know what I want to look for and to know what we need to get better on the baseball side. So in terms of recruiting, the most important thing that I can do is bring in the right leadership, the right management. And of course, in the business side, it was already here, so I didn't have to recruit anyone. Uh, effectively, But on the baseball side, it was clear after um, about a year and a half or so that we just, we just weren't as progressive as other teams were and just weren't taking advantage of all the metrics and analytics that other teams are using to get better. And so we were fortunate through a, a very quick uh, dating process to be convinced that Theo Epstein was the right guy for us. And so I hired him, I guess, seven, seven or eight years ago now. And that was transformative for the organization in terms of bringing in the right leadership at the right time to redirect our baseball organization to achieve higher goals.
1: Uh, one of the things that stood out for me was when you were hiring on the baseball side, the emphasis on, on character, you, you weren't just trying to hire great players or future great players. You were trying to hire great people. Is that a fair representation?
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, when you when you're looking at, the guys you want on your team now we're going down to the team level it's it's really important that you have good chemistry with your with your ball players and you know people ask me how how important is it and there's no way to quantitatively measure that there's no way to say okay well it's worth a couple games a year or something like that but if you think about what i would say to people think about the coworker you dislike the most And then imagine that person with you on every plane ride, every hotel, every game, every. You're in the shower, like you're together all the time. If you don't have good chemistry on your team, it can't help but have an effect on player performance. And so that leads to two things you have to think very. Thoughtfully about, and one is getting the right manager. I think a a good manager is someone who identifies the rubs in the clubhouse and addresses them in a way that keeps players focused on the game and keeps players away from distracting each other if there if there are distractions in the clubhouse. But you also have to so a great manager. Then you also have to make sure you have the right right players themselves. Before you sign a free agent, you want to make sure they're they're good they're good people in the clubhouse. Uh, Before you draft a player, we do extensive. Analysis of what kind of uh, what kind of young man that player is, is he a good teammate? Is he a good person? Will he be willing and able to get through all the ups and downs it takes to become a successful major league baseball player? How does he handle adversity? All those things add up, and so not only do you have to get the right talent in the room, but you have to get the right personalities in there as well.
2: Does this cultural aspect also lend itself to an analytic approach? And can you talk a little bit about how you go through that, that systematic rigor in evaluating character, culture, et cetera?
0: Well, there are ways that people are trying to analyze character more analytically. I mean, there there's personality tests and those kind of things. But, but ultimately, at this point, that still is really just getting to know the player as a person. And that's... Pretty much comes down to talking to all the coaches and teammates and parents and, and the kind of things before you draft a, a draft a young man. So the analytical side there I don't think is fully developed. Although There are ways people are trying to get there. So you have to just overlay that lens across whatever statistical analysis you're doing on that player.
2: So would you say your approach there is, is differentiated at all or perhaps you just value it more?
0: It's a good question. I, I couldn't really speak to what a lot of other clubs do. We say it's a high priority. I'm sure other people say it's a high priority. Whether or not uh, we are better at it, I couldn't tell you. I know that the clubhouse that we have right now, uh, the core of guys have been together a long time and and they're all great young men as well as great players. So we've been successful at finding those kind of players. Whether we're ultimately better than other clubs, that's hard to say.
1: Did you spend a lot of time in the early years from taking over, looking at other organizations, either within baseball, across sports or even outside of sports thinking particularly when those organizations have had some kind of transformation what what can we learn what can we learn across the whole business
0: yeah absolutely so you know for example when it was time to look for a new general manager a new head of our baseball operation i hired two different quantitative analysis to be done by two different uh one was a a local guy who was a PhD from uh, Caltech or something, and he did analysis for us, and, and I had another guy from the from the East Coast do an analysis to just try to take the success of other teams and put it into a quantitative framework that would allow me just to understand who was actually doing the best or doing more with less. If it was a small market team that was doing very well with a with a low payroll, I wanted to know that. If it was a large market team that was doing great drafting the right players and developing the right players, I wanted to know that. And taking out the individuals, just the organizations. Uh, I think that was you know that was definitely something where we tried to put a, a quantitative overlay on that process. Uh, away from that, there was a lot of qualitative discussions. Uh, during the process of looking for a new general manager I talked to about 20 people who I could trust to have a discreet conversation and ask them a lot of the same questions about what they thought our organization might need and who would be the right person for us. Those were, those were very informative. And thirdly, just going out and talking to other clubs. I mean, just going and sitting down with the clubs that we looked up to. The Red Sox are a great example of a team, a, a team that had not only uh, transformed their baseball organization from their quote-unquote curse to being winners, but also their ballpark. You know the 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 Wrigley. A lot of the things we did at Wrigley were guided by some of the things they did at Fenway. So other sports organizations we looked up to, like the Giants and a few others, I went and talked to them too. But I think lastly, um, just go out and talk to your own people. Mm. Like really, just being in Dominican Republic every year and going to uh, where we have a big training facility, going to all the minor league clubs a couple times a year, spend time on the road with your own people, and I think that's. Probably the best way that I got information in those early years on what things, what things that we could be better at.
2: Were in that process, were there one or two really big, surprising, impactful takeaways that you? Yeah, that great you didn't question, can, You know,
0: the fact there, there really was. Uh, sitting in an airport one day with one of our, uh, with one of our guys on the player development side, he just said, "Look, uh, it's a kind of a bad time of the year for us." And I'm like, "Oh, why is that?" He's like, "Well, every year about this time, we get our, our budget mm-hmm. cut." because we'll go out and sign a new player and the international guys are expecting to spend those dollars and they and they kind of get redirected toward the major league club. Well, you know, we had studied the Cubs and we had found out that relative to other teams, we spent the highest percentage of our baseball budget on major league payroll, which meant that we were going for it. We were trying to win every year and that's fine. That's a strategy and it's not a, not the wrong strategy, but what it does do is it, it makes you de-emphasize the future. I mean, it, it, it takes away from what you're investing in your future teams. And it didn't really hit home to me until I heard it straight from one of our guys. And um, it was something that is an example of you know, being out, and if you're not having a beer in a hotel, and that hotel is an airport, if you're not having a beer in the hotel waiting for a late plane, maybe you just don't get that perspective. Right,
2: great. Um, going back to the, the cultural aspect of it, um, there's certainly, no matter how much work you do, um, how much due diligence. There's a human element here and, and things end up differently than, than what you expect. And for better or worse, you do it in a very public domain. So when things go wrong from a character standpoint, from a culture standpoint, what is the process that the organization puts around that to try to, try to get to the root of it and then try to make it right?
0: Well, I give a lot of credit to Theo Epstein and his guys. When we do find something that's an action, a players taken or something the players said that may not be consistent with the way we feel or the way our fans feel we address it head-on you know it's you you can't always get an answer that makes everyone happy but you can convince yourself and and that you've done the right thing And, and we've had instances of that in the last few years where a really thorough internal discussion that tries to bring in all the potential factors is, is really executed before we make a decision. And I think our guys care about that as much as anyone in the league. And so when we've had these kind of issues in the past, I'm, I'm uh, really happy and that the way we go about it has been so thorough and thoughtful. So um, you know, I really give our guys a lot of credit for that.
1: How important is the, the manual, the Cubs way, uh, in, in just codifying what it means to be a Cub and how a Cub Should behave and how much input do the players have into that on an ongoing basis? Is it something that's given to them and it's for them to sort of read interpret and react to or is it something They're consulted on and they buy into it and they take more ownership of it
0: Well, so the Cubs way for those that don't know it's it's not a mission statement I mean, it's it's a it's a book. I mean, it's it's a thick book that talks about how we're gonna coach and develop young players and I think it's a, it's, it was what Theo Epstein did, and he did it on the first, in the first spring training he was with the organization. He brought all the coaches and players and managers together, and they they talked about how are we gonna, how are we gonna bunt, how are we gonna steal, how are we going to teach certain types of pitches, and we want it because we want to be consistent. And I think it has really two purposes: one, the very practical purpose of trying to train players consistently. You know, the fact is they go from the A team to the double A team. They go from one hitting coach to another hitting coach. You hope they're getting consistent messaging between those two coaches. But without a manual or without, a, without guideposts on that, you're not sure if that's going to happen. So I think it has a practical, you know, a practical part of the player development strategy is to having a, a Cubs way. But I also think it has a symbolic uh, a symbolic effect of saying, hey, we're one organization, we're going to work together, try to find best solutions or best answers for how to develop players, and we're going to be consistent in how we apply that. And maybe there's something that's not in the Cubs way, you know, per se in the book, but we, we talk about things that are, you know, we do things the Cubs way, which means also the right way. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe we shift to the, the business side of things a little bit, as you mentioned earlier, the, the importance of the business and the importance of the, the stadium and the experience there. I think that tends to be overlooked, perhaps. Uh, the, you know, the, the team and the product on the field is, is obviously the visible part. Can you talk a little bit about, again, back you know, 10 years ago, what, how you thought about developing the business that is the Cubs?
0: Well, I mean, the business falls into a couple different categories. I mean, the the, the first thing was to make sure we had the right management team, which, um, like I said, we have, we have a, a good, uh, well, I think, you know, maybe the best president in baseball. He supplemented his, his team. They wrote a huge strategic plan on everything we could do better here and, and executed against it ever since. So I think, you know, the, that comes down to really having the right people in the right chairs with good leadership. And from our standpoint, from my standpoint, you know, being involved with the the big-picture vision on that and then being supportive of all the execution that has to go behind it. Uh, when it comes to the ballpark, you know, I mean, Wrigley Field was built in 1914 for $250,000 in eight weeks. And you can imagine that, you know, it, it could probably use some improvements. And on top of that, you know, for the first 20 or 30 years, I think the Wrigley family, who took over the team in about 1919 or 1920, they were they were very proud of the ballpark and put a lot of money into it. It was, it was Yankee Stadium and, and Wrigley Field were the two, you know, two iconic ballparks in all of baseball for all those years. But after World War II into the 50s and 60s, you know, it just wasn't a lot of investment. They really, like if some of the features of the ballpark deteriorated over time, they got replaced with cheaper, less aesthetically pleasing alternatives. And on top of that just the the core fundamental structure the steel the concrete the electrical the plumbing all that stuff was underinvested in for decades so from the ballpark standpoint i mean it was the first and foremost let's make sure that this is going to be around for the next generation of fans we want this to be built and i used to joke i want this to be the roman coliseum i want someone to walk through here in 2000 years saying what the heck do these people do with this <laughs> building because we want it to be that solid and so, and we don't want to have the next generation, whether it's my family or whoever in hundred years to have to go through what we just went through. So that was, that was number one. Number two was we have to make it a better fan experience. It's critical in baseball in in other U.S. sports, NFL is a great team's uh, TV sport, like it's great on television, maybe the best television sport out there. Um, if you're an NFL fan, you watch almost any NFL game, your, your television experience is, is critical. NBA is a superstar sport. It's a star sport. You, whether your star player plays in Houston or Oklahoma City or wherever, it doesn't matter. You're watching the stars play the game. Baseball is a local sport. Your baseball team is a member of your family. And how you feel about that member of the family is largely driven by how you feel when you come over here to watch baseball. So we needed to control the, have, have a better fan experience. And that led to some of the developments outside the park, which are family friendly. But it also led to addressing the biggest issues inside of Wrigley, which was, you know, washrooms. I mean, you know, people didn't plan for that 75, 80 years ago. You know, so we, we need to improve that. We, you know, we did a dramatic amount of increases on, on those kind of facilities. Points of sale. People don't want to come to the ballpark and wait in line. You know, uh, that's another one that, that we have we've we've done dramatic things to improve, like just tearing out a little bit. If someone wants to have a higher end experience, if you if you're a firm that wants to bring in your high end clients, you know, Wrigley didn't have that before. So we built in certain clubs that really address the the kind of fan that wants to have an all inclusive ticket or wants to have just a higher end experience. And we've also addressed the the fan experience at at the other end of the spectrum too. We've built out all the extra facilities in the upper deck and made it a, a better experience overall. So structure first. Secondly, it was about fan experience, but thirdly, and maybe what I'm, you know, maybe makes me the happiest, make it look nice again. Yeah. Like Wrigley Field, when you pulled up and you drove down Clark street in November or December five years ago, what should be this beautiful ballpark that we're so proud of looked like an old parking garage Everything that fell off the outside got replaced with chain link fence. And uh, it just looked terrible. So we had this talk and we had this vision like, I want Wrigley Field to be like that place in Europe where you're walking through the old part of some old city and there's, oh, and here's the church or the bridge or the palace. Mm. And people are just hanging around it because it's a beautiful place to be, a beautiful historic place to be. We have to think of that as our goal for Wrigley Field. And um, working with historical architects and, and other people, we restored the outside of the ballpark to look like it did in 1935, which is what we determined when it was the most aesthetically pleasing from the outside. So now when you come to Wrigley and look at it, you see how it was meant to be. And we're glad we could put that back. So, so all those things add up. And I'm, I'm really proud of all of, our, all of our hard work that we put into the
1: ballpark. Sure. on a day like today, it looks, it looks fantastic. So, Looking forward a bit, uh, when you think about the digital world and the relationship you can have with current fans and future fans and expanding the fan base, the customer base, how do you, how do you think about that? Whether that's doing more with content, which could be Cubs TV, or whether it's social media, how, how do you think about that, sort of building a deeper, more intimate relationship with, with the client base?
0: Yeah, but, and, there's, and that's a, that's a very, uh, I could go on about that question for a long time, because it's, it's a very important thing to us. I mean, the fact is that the way people consume their information, consume their media, is changing. You know, maybe 25 years ago, if you just got good newspaper articles about yourself, that was probably going to be enough. But that's that's not the way people consume their media as much as it used to be. You have to be in control of your story and your image directly. It's complicated a little bit by the fact that we have the league is also involved with managing you know your image, and we have to there's kind of boundaries on what you can and can't do but I think our guys have done a great job of getting out ahead of it. You know, our new YouTube channel has I think 100,000 some subscribers, which that's a great place for us to tell our story uh, directly and we can get a back we can get a backstage pass to to seeing how a player gets ready for a game or see the player in the offseason and see how they live. And those are kind of things that fans want. They want more engagement. They want to know more they want more context. Uh, I think that, that's going that's that's a great development for us. Relatedly, part of the reason that we're excited about launching our own network, our own channel, is that we can get to our fans directly that way also. So that as as Marquee Sports Network comes online next year, you'll see a lot more information about the things that fans care about, which is the players. And I think that's you know that's something that'll help us. You know, we encourage our players, we help them do what they want to do on social media. Uh, we trust our players. You know, they're, they're all very respectful and thoughtful young men. And in the baseball culture, it's, it's not like other sports where it's, it's okay to bring attention to yourself. You know, Typically a, a baseball player doesn't try to raise his profile above the profile of his teammates, which is inconsistent with social media. And so what we try to do is encourage guys to be a little more active. And some of them, like these guys are funny. Like they have great personalities. They're very busy. So, uh, you know, maybe they don't have time to sit down and think about what they're gonna put on Instagram that night or whatever, but, so we try to help them a little bit, the league tries to help them a little bit, but we encourage them, and that's, that's the best way, really, to get to your fans. A message from a player back to a fan is powerful and meaningful to the fan. Uh, so so those, those are kind of like the three ways we look at it, and, and there's other little ways. Of course, in the park, um, you know, we do a lot too, so. So,
1: if you could go back, Time travel back to 2009, what would you say to yourself then? What, what would you say you're going to find this harder than you think? What, what lessons would you want to share with yourself back in 2009? That's a good question. I don't know. I think that when
0: I look back at 2009, the steepest learning curve I had was all about uh, local politics. I mean, just one would assume that we're about, there's only four ballparks in baseball that are privately financed, and we're one of them one would assume that putting up a video board on a ballpark that you pay for yourself. And of course, we're, we pay an incredible amount of local taxes. You'd think that would just be an easy thing to do. But in Chicago, nothing's easy to do. <laughs> and so, so there was a, a very, very steep learning curve there, which, you know, we had a lot of delays. The city slowed us down in a bunch of different ways. But ultimately, I think we used that time well to make sure that the planning for Wrigley once we got the project rolling was ready to go. And we're we're, um, happy that we used that time wisely to make sure that the money we did put into the ballpark uh, was put together, put in effectively. So I think my number one learning curve was local politics on the baseball side. You know, I, I don't know what else, maybe the first draft, like I didn't Understand very early on that we were really not spending a lot on our future Maybe I would have suggested to our baseball guys that we set aside a little more a little more of our resources to you know For the future as opposed to the present But uh, you know, I think those are kind of like two of the things maybe I would have done differently or I see differently as I sit here today
2: So I, this would be a good time to transition into the to the analytics um, of baseball but a good segue, perhaps before we get into the, the analytics of the sport itself, would be the analytics around, around the business and your engagement with your, with your client base and, and the fans and where that is today and, and how that is likely to progress into the future.
0: You know, I, I think that uh, when it comes to analytics in baseball, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's really changed everything. It started, you know... Maybe, tw- you know, basically, you know, the, the box score was invented in 1859. And it was basically the main way of transmitting information about a baseball game. Still is today. And, you know, then, like, you got to, like, the, the 60s. a little bit of A little bit of technology was going in. People were starting to follow stats a little more carefully. 70s had a little bit more going on. And then uh, transformative was Bill James and what he started to do. And Bill James, for those that don't know the history, was literally a, a night watchman at a pork and beans factory in Kansas who just sat down and started looking at numbers in baseball in a different way and would ask questions that would go against the grain of of the way that baseball just saw things and then try to come up with quantitative answers that would be different than than just the you know like the the basic baseball thinking and that was the beginning i think of people just looking at the raw numbers more thoughtfully, and of course that led over the years to the development of a bunch of different which which stats are more more important. What are we? Are we do RBIs really matter? All this other stuff, both in game situations like should we bunt or not, or or analyzing player results like RBIs and that kind of thing, and that led up to like the Moneyball, you know, Moneyball kind of Moneyball uh, era, if you would, if you will, like the uh, young guys, young general managers, looking at stats in a way that. That gave them a little bit of an edge in player development, uh, player understanding. So, and that, and that's where it was in you know the late '80s, early '90s, and and for a while. But you know, then the next level came, and that came with technology. So now, as as we're able to look at every single event at every single game from multiple perspectives, not just the stat on what happened, was that a hit, was that not a hit, but multiple sets of cameras on different systems in every ballpark, studying every single part of that, uh, that play. You've, you've gotten to a point now where what's happening is teams are driving to take all the randomness and noise and variables out of the performance. So like pitch data, you know that's interesting. What was his ERA in college? He had a 2.9 ERA, but pitch performance—where would the ball actually go—like those—that's that's the next level. When when we did trades a few years ago, a couple of great examples of looking to the next level on on stats was um, with uh, Scott Feldman, who we traded for. He was a Ranger, or we signed him as a free agent. He was a Ranger. He had about a five point, I think a 5.09 ERA, and um, I asked our baseball guys why they thought he would be value added for us. And they said, well, he's actually, if you look at his other stats, his fielding independent pitching and a few other things, he is actually a lot better than that. And he was. And so he got here. He um, got off to a great start. We were not going to be winning our division that year, so we looked to trade him. So then we traded him to the Baltimore Orioles, and one of the players there was Jake Arrieta. Jake Arrieta had a similar situation in the sense that when you looked at his outcomes, when you looked at his, not just his wins, but his ERA and other things, he he looked like one of the, you know, bottom quartile pitchers in baseball. But when you looked at his actual pitches, they were much better. So there was a discrepancy between what the quality of his pitches were his pitch data and, and, and the performance of his pitches. And that gave our team the confidence that, you know, maybe if we could bring him into our organization, there'll be an opportunity for him to work out whatever issues he has and, and get better. And so everyone is looking now beyond just what the stats say to what the actual event happened. What, you know, you talk about, like, exit velocities off bats or launch angles, those are very, very popular things. But now we can measure so much. So the, the real question now comes, all right, so now we have, we have 12 full-time technologists here. The real question comes down to, can we take all this information and make it practical? Right.
2: As you move from the, the game tactics, I, I guess, which is what we're kind of talking about here, the, the play on the field, to perhaps the, the training of, of the younger people in the organization, or even the, the drafting and the recruiting, are you able to apply that same technology at that level, or is it not quite there yet?
0: Some of it, yeah, it depends. Like A lot of it's camera-based. There's cameras that we have that take 300 frames per second, cameras that we have that take 1,000 frames per second. The quality of those cameras won't be in every, every ballpark. We do a lot of video, obviously, with, of, our, of the people that we're looking at to bring into the organization. But you can't quite get all the same data that you can out of a, out of a player that's in your organization already. But you do the best you can.
2: And how level is the playing field now? As you said, the, the Moneyball era is is actually now you know, been fairly well exploited, I would imagine. You've talked about some of the leading edge things, but my guess is the gap between the, the leading edge and the lagging edge is probably narrowing across all of this through time. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think that um, as different organizations hire from each other, you end up with ideas moving around the league fairly quickly. Everyone is committed to looking for that next, the next thing, whatever that might be. And um, so I think you, you've, what you know, might have been like a, a, like a discrepancy or an arbitrage at one point, it's largely, sh- it's shrunk. Now, that doesn't mean we still don't put money behind it. Um, we still are working very hard. There are some organizations that seem to have really outperformed in, in some of these you know, newer models and, and newer str- strategies. So people are always looking for what's, what's next. But I would agree that, it, that the, the the difference between the top team and the bottom team has shrunk dramatically, you know, and there's just you know, not as much edge as there might have been.
2: So it leads one to wonder that um, potentially there's a there's a reversal of the impact of of data and technology. Um, and analytics you know this combination of, of art and science which is what we're talking about here generally and, and we talk about that in our industry as well does it reach a point then where it's just table stakes and everyone does that and then the art actually has you know increasing emphasis you kind of go back to the future
0: well our baseball guys will tell you that they, they look at it as two lenses on the same you know on the same telescope you know like they've got to like skip to you look at both what you can see on paper and what you can see in person in a sense Because no matter how much data you collect and no matter how much you can isolate the event you're trying to understand, there's still going to be context that can't be captured with a stat. You know, you talk about, you know, art and science and investing. I mean, you can look at any any one investment and see its performance over time, but... But you really, it doesn't give you the context of whether or not that was a good investment for any one individual, because that's, that's relative to other things that they may have owned, or their, their time horizons, or their objectives. Anyway, so I think that there is, there's always going to be room for someone who uses some judgment to add some context to the statistical analysis. And that's just because of the human nature of what we do.
1: And how important is momentum? You, you can look at a player over his career or over the last two or three years and come up with, with data around it, But how important is his recent performance, the momentum? You know, he may well be not performing at the level suggested by the average the last three years, four years. How much do you read into kind of is he, is he hot right now?
0: Well, you hope, you hope you don't, because if, you're, uh, if you believe in your numbers, then, then if someone is having a, uh, a bad week or two, there'll be some mean reversion at some point, and they'll end up with uh, the kind of results over the course of enough observations that, that they'll, they'll come back and perform better. You know, I think that's, you know, I think it's probably more psychological for players than anything else. There's a lot of studies that show that what you did in your last attempt doesn't have a lot of impact to what you do on your next attempt. You know, we hope our guys don't let uh, a few bad days affect how they approach their performance. You know, there's a, there's, a, you know there's, there's a mental aspect to that. I think one of the things that we do, and I'm sure other teams do also, is we, have a lot of, we spend a lot of time on mental skills, as we call it. You know, getting players in to talk to some are former players, some are just trained psychologists, to get them to not worry about the exogenous factors that shouldn't affect their next at bat. You know, get them to stay in the moment, you know, get them to think about what they're trying to accomplish at, at the plate the next time they get up and not worry about what happened yesterday or last week or if they had an error in the third inning. So we try to, we try to make it so that momentum doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt a player. Now, if a guy is feeling good because he's had a bunch of hits and he's really confident, you, know, you can let that one run. But I think ultimately it comes down to training players to not let past results affect their current performance.
2: One of the takeaways from Moneyball was this, this focus on the physical attributes of, of an athlete, and there might be some things that don't fit the mold, if you will, of, of what an athlete should look like. Where is, where is the analytics around that today in terms of you know, looking at, at genetic composition and, and eyesight reflexes, and is that, are there a lot of analytics around that, and is that a, is that a focus for, for your organization?
0: Yeah, you know, and obviously the, the movie Moneyball makes a lot of fun of that, you know, talking about how the kid, he looks good, you know, so we should draft him. I, I don't think baseball decisions are made by how a player looks anymore. I really don't. I mean, performance is performance. We can measure performance so many different ways now. Now, there are, like you talk about eyesight, there's a high correlation between guys with great eyesight and good hitters. So, um, you know, maybe you want to know that before you, before you draft a player. But generally, I, th- I think people, particularly with all the data we have now, and, and like I said, not just the statistics, but all the, the, the video that you can break down on a player, uh, it really comes down to the performance of the player as opposed to how they look.
1: And so back to Ken's question around kind of, are we reaching saturation? When you think about what, I, what you have data on and what you don't have data on, is there anything really obvious where you think, I'd just love to have data on that, but I, just, I haven't got it yet? Or are you measuring everything that can be counted? Is being counted?
0: I'm confident that almost everything is being measured and recorded somewhere. I'm sure that um, you know that it can be analyzed better. And there are, and, and so kind of like, where is it going next with baseball? In a sense, like your um, injuries, like injury prevention, recovery times. Looking at the way particularly pitchers throw the ball, can you predict the, you know, someone who's gonna to likely to have arm trouble or, or elbow trouble or shoulder trouble, whatever. You know, we've got, you know, teams are accumulating a lot of data on that. You know, people are looking at, uh, at least in certain situations, um, like wearables. That's something that's kind of a part of the future, and other sports are doing it too. You know, you put a sleeve on a guy to measure the force he's putting on his arm, or you put a harness on a guy to measure the force he's putting on his swing. You know, we, we look at that data. You know, force plates, people, you know, guys standing on a platform when they swing, and they can tell you where, where his weight is when he's swinging, that kind of stuff. I think that right now we're probably in a situation where we're collecting more data than we're actually understanding how to use. And so the next, maybe the next, edge or the next breakthrough just comes from someone who's taking all this information and finding the little pieces that are useful for the for the club. Now, it also changes the way we do day-to-day things. So you've got you've got a huge amount of information coming into our systems from multiple databases and the pitching and hitting coaches have to sit down every day and try to take all that data and put it into a format that can help that player on that day so you know you we've got a, an incredible amount of effort that goes into boiling all the data into more simpler output and you know i think you know the, the job of a pitching coach or a hitting coach or a catching coordinator has gotten harder because they have so much more to work with than they would have 20 years ago so, so not only are the people looking in the big, big picture of how to find the next place for edge with all the data we're collecting. It's also a challenge in the small picture on a day-to-day basis.
2: A slight shift here, which is around around the decision-making process that, that you have as, a, as an executive. And, and I think what's unique about being in a, a sports executive is you're in the public domain very much, yet uh, the stakes are high, you need to take risks, um, whether it's signing a big free agent, making making a big trade. Can you talk a little bit about the, the process behind that and how much there is? Obviously, there's going to be a, a, you're going to analyze that as much as you can. But when it comes down to taking a large risk, can you talk a little bit about the process that you and your team have behind that?
0: Well, I mean, there's different types of risk. If you're talking about what happens on the field and, and who to sign, you know, it really goes back to the baseball guys. I think one of the things that's great about our baseball organization is that we show them all the resources we can give them. And effectively, at a baseball team, what happens is you you generate all the revenue you can, you pay all the fixed expenses of opening the ballpark and all your other costs, and you pretty much give all the rest of the money to the baseball guys to to spend. And um, so they know, you know, they know what resources they're going to have financially. Uh, They should know. What resources they have from a player's standpoint in the minor leagues coming up, or they should know how a player is going to perform or how to expect a player to perform in, in the future. So I mean, they have to make those decisions. Uh, you I'm involved in the decisions. I talk to the guys. Uh, I get you know a little bit of time on everything that they do. but but ultimately, it, it has to be the decision of the baseball organization, what they want to do. and and if if an owner gets too involved, you're first of all, probably making worse decisions, but secondly, you're kind of breaking that level of accountability. If you're going to hire someone and tell them that you're going to be judged on on performance and then you get involved with how they achieve that performance, then who's really responsible for the for the results? Fortunately, like I said, we have really smart guys. They do very thorough work on every decision they make. It makes our jobs on my job and uh Crane's job a lot easier knowing that we have um such you know really just people putting great thought into all their decisions and when they come to recommend something it is generally worth you know just going ahead and supporting it you know we're not 100% everybody every team bets you know makes makes decisions that in retrospect aren't the ones they would have made but but you just have to you have to place your bet somewhere and I think our guys are as good at doing
1: that as anyone Tom, I think the, the question I want to ask you the most is, what does it feel like to win the World Series? But before we get there, how did you feel during the infamous 17-minute rain delay in Game 7?
0: Wow. All right. I misled, this is like a – it's kind of funny. You know, it's funny. I it was a couple days after the World Series. I had this terrible nightmare that we had lost the World Series and I was sitting with, at breakfast with my wife, and I'm like, "God, ah, I woke up in the middle of the night sweating, that we lost the World Series. She's like, oh my God, you have post-playoff stress disorder. <laughs> and it was kind of like that, yeah. you know, it was very stressful. The way that game unfolded, you know, getting off to a lead, seemingly in control, and then things getting away from us there for a while. Those 17 minutes, my thoughts were consumed with uh, really two things, one, you know, I needed to go make sure all the family was good. I was hosting all my in-laws and everybody. so I had had to, had a check on everybody. but but really the the thing that I thought about the most from the baseball perspective was it's so hard to get to that moment. You know you've got thirty other you know, thirty teams. You have to have a great season. You have to have a great postseason. You have to stay healthy. You have to get lucky to be in the situation we were in to win in Game 7 and to see it get away. And should we lose that game, it would be one of the longest off-seasons in the history of mankind. And I just didn't want to see that get away for the sake of our players, for the sake of our manager, for the sake of our baseball organization, and for the sake of our fans. To see that one get away from us would have been uh, really, really difficult. And so 17 minutes felt like 17 years, I think, pretty much for me. So.
1: But you ended up with 5 million... On the streets, five million fans on the streets around here—that must have felt amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean that—that's one of those things. Like you're you're going down, you know, in your open top open top bus. We we leave from the ballpark here, and just every way along the route, all the way from Wrigley, all the way to Grant Park on the south side, you know, south side of the Loop. Streets were packed, and people just cheering, and people happy. You know, we drove by, there was a little kid sitting on his parents' shoulders with a, a, a poster that said we did it grandpa and it just reminds you like you know that like I said earlier like you know the baseball team's part of your family and for all these people to give all this love for all these years and not get paid back you know it was just amazing to be able to be even a, a small part of giving them that payback and then having that you know, that rapturous celebration with millions of people which people have said is the largest gathering of people in the history of the western hemisphere and certainly the happiest gathering of people (laughs) in the history of mankind so it was just incredible and uh, all i could think as we were going particularly down michigan avenue is wow who who gets to do this i mean what what an incredibly lucky blessed person i am to be in a situation where i can be part of something this special
1: absolutely tom thank you very much for giving us so much time that's fantastic we really appreciate it so thank you again
0: I don't know, I'm happy to talk and I'm good to see you guys and you know, just hopefully you can stick around for the game.
1: That'd
2: be great. And we at William Blair extend our
1: thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com.
3: This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.